The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. We need to hear our hearts to feel alive. This might be why people hurt so many so often. To hear the hearts of the scared makes hearts beat fast. No, Mice, you are not this way. No, bees, you are not. Dogs, pigs, hens. But we are. And you are at our mercy. You cannot forget hell for even a day. And so I cannot either. Excerpted from the poem Picnic in the book Kind by Gretchen Primack. The poet will be my guest in the second half of today's program. We'll open with a memoirist memories as we travel a journey of compassion with Diane Waltner, author of Evolving into Wholeness. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, and I hope that you are feeling hopeful that we may be coming out of the time of this pandemic and into a time of appreciation of good friends and good food that we didn't cook ourselves and maybe places we haven't been in a while and of books, not because we're stuck at home and reading is one of life's few options, but because we have quite a few options and books are just one of the best. So to introduce the first wonderful writer that we'll be talking with today, Diane Waltner is an animal rights activist living in Wichita, Kansas with her feline companion, Mandy. She founded and is active in the Wichita Animal Rights Meetup Group and has organized a variety of events there, including a vegan pop-up market. She's the organizer for the Wichita Veg Meetup Group and is also active in the local Unity community. And she's my guest today because she has written a memoir that is such a page turner, so exquisite and so moving that when she asked me to write the foreword, I said yes after about 30 pages. (laughs) This is really, really a, a 
sweet, important, and yet powerful read, One Woman's Evolution to Wholeness. So, Diane, welcome. Thank you so much, Victoria. It's a pleasure to be here. So how does it feel to be past the writing stage? Is it a relief or do you miss it? Um, probably a little bit of both, but I'd say mostly a, a relief because um, it, it, there were some there were some struggles along the way. Um, so it, it's nice to actually have it finished. Well, I'm sure it is. Having had that experience many times myself, <laughs> I remember uh, early on, in fact, the first contemporary author that I ever knew, Nathaniel Altman, he wrote The Nonviolent Revolution. He's written a lot of books. And he said to me, authors almost always get a cold when their book is done because the body was so concerned about helping you finish the book, it just held off on even getting sick. So I hope you didn't get a cold, and I am so happy that you've given this book to the world. So, Diane, start a little bit at the beginning and tell us why you wanted to write a memoir. Well, um, I guess I've always kind of secretly had a dream of becoming an author. So I've always loved books. Um, and as I got more involved with the animal rights community and started being more open with my story, um, I began to feel that there might be something um, in it worth telling that might be helpful to others who are or have struggled with some of the same things that I struggled with. And so I felt a compulsion to, to um, put some things on paper and then with the help of, of some dear friends and coaches uh, who encouraged and persuaded me to, to actually publish it. Um, but I thought, thought that it was a, a, a story worth telling um, that I hadn't heard really too much of, because I don't know of too many other, especially women uh, authors. And if there are, I would certainly love to hear from them, but I haven't really seen too many memoirs about people who have um, grown up in the poultry industry and uh, as a family business and left. And, and I would certainly be interested in hearing of others who might have, but I thought it was something that was, that, there wasn't much of. Yes. Well, what I got in reading your book was you had these two strong influences in your early life. One was this family business. I believe you, that's a tur turkey hatchery. You can tell us about that. And the other was very strong religious faith. So how did those two influences make you who you are? Well, uh, yes, spirituality and church was always important to us. I grew up uh, in the Mennonite church, and, and um, there are a lot of things, as I talk about in the book, there are a lot of things that I still value about the Mennonite teachings and about my upbringings. Um, and so I always felt uh, somewhat of a closeness to God, uh, my my perception of God has changed significantly over the years, but there was always that that feeling. Um, so that had a big influence, and um, and as far as the uh, business, I'm I forget what the I'm, I'm sorry. What was the other part of the question? Oh, the the uh, the turkey hatchery. 
Well, yes, actually it was a, a poultry hatchery. So we did hatch both turkeys and chickens. And that was you know, where I spent a lot of my time as a child growing up. We, you know, um, dad had the hatchery before I was born and mom became a very important worker and supervisor there. So, so a lot of times after school, we'd be there. And, um, and so it, uh, that was just, it was just a, a major part of our lives. So just for people who don't have a background in, in rural America or the rural world. So a, a, a hatchery is where the babies are birthed and then they're sent out to various farms. Is that how it works? Right. There, uh, we had hatchers um, that, you know, the eggs would be put into the hatchers and um, once they were hatched, then they'd be pulled uh, there's a group of, of men who would pull the chickens out of the eggs and help those who who um, to get out. And, and you know, in, in big, yeah, that's not just uh, a small operation. It was a pretty uh, pretty good sized operation. So there were a lot of a lot of um, a lot of eggs and a lot of hatchers. And and so after they were were pulled from the eggs, then they were sent to be sexed, and then um, the Male chicks um, would be uh, would be discarded. Basically, would be suffocated uh, because there was no need for them. And the female chicks would go on to have some other procedures and mutilations uh, done to them. So, how did your evolution? You know, your your book is called "Evolving into Wholeness." How did this affect you as a small child and then as you approached adolescence and as you became a vegetarian and ultimately vegan adult? Well, I mean, it was as a child, I remember, you know, spending a lot of time playing with uh, the baby chickens and turkeys and, and, and enjoying enjoying spending time with them. But then they just became commodities. You know, they they didn't. Uh, they didn't have, yeah. You know, they lost their individuality when they, you know, got into these big flocks, and and so it, it just became. Um, and that's I, I kept telling myself that you know this is necessary, you know we need the food, and so even though some of these things I don't like to do and don't like seeing done, this is just something that has to be done um, for the good of humanity, and so so I just kind of detached. Yeah, my emotional attachment to them and and um, learn to see them like most people or like many people do just as commodities and as food. Um, and then as I got away from the hatchery, um, yeah, I kind of and I got involved with other animals. We used to have farm cats um, and they were kind of. I always appreciated them, but I still didn't really see them in the same way as I did when I got my cat that I lived with 24-7 and really became more in tuned with um, their personality and, and became to really appreciate the fact that they were individuals and that they were so much like us. And then that started me questioning, well, and actually what had what had led me to 
start questioning even before that was when my dad asked me the question. Um, I was horrified by reading about a, a story about people eating horses. And dad asked me the question, what's the difference between eating a horse and eating a cow? And that was the question really that that um, stuck in my mind and that followed me throughout the years until I finally couldn't um, couldn't deny the fact that there really wasn't a difference. And if I was opposed to one, then I needed to be opposed to others. And it just took me a while longer to extend that to so I went vegetarian when I was about 30, but then it took me a little while longer to extend that to chickens and turkeys because, well, for one, it was really hard um, going against the family business and about against everything that I had grown up with. So that was really, really difficult. And I still kept telling myself that chickens and turkeys are, you know, they're so much different than... Um, dogs and cats and horses and and uh cows that that they surely yeah they're too dumb they don't feel pain they you know they just um they're just not that that sentient i guess i thought um so it took me a while to the more i started reading them later about them the more i began to realize and really question what uh what i had done and i felt like it was inevitable that I needed to um, to eliminate all animal products, including the, the eggs and the dairy. I think it's hard for a lot of people to relate to an animal that's very, very small and to an animal that's not a mammal. <laughs> and right. in having a rescue pigeon, it has just so opened my eyes to so much that is going on in the life of a bird that he has learned now that if he feels that he has been in his cage too much, which is not very much, <laughs> basically to sleep and come out and have lunch, he'll climb the door and make a lot of noise because he gets it like this door is what opens and that's how I get out. And so, you know, they may be very small beings, but they have a lot going on. So I wanted to ask you too, Diane, one of the things that also makes your book so rich and, and fascinating is that we're not unidimensional people. We're not just, this was my life, this was my childhood, then I went vegan, now I care about animals. No, there's so many colors and so much texture. And in your case, you also had a journey away from alcohol. So how, how does that intersect with your journey to veganism? Well, um, you know, the leaving alcohol behind was was the last thing that I did. I I um, when I was I went vegetarian when I was about thirty. I quit smoking when I was about forty. I went vegan when I was about fifty, and I quit drinking when I was about sixty. So I've had a major major life health change almost every decade. So I don't know what seventy will bring, um, but uh, but it was interesting um, as I begin to question my relationship with alcohol and start uh, 
start looking at some things, it was interesting to see some of the similarities between my journey uh, from go being going uh, vegan and also going alcohol free because um, there, yeah, there's, I, I saw so many similarities. For one thing, it's, it's both alcohol and animal products are so ubiquitous in society that, that they're all considered good and necessary and, and natural. And, um, and like to, to refrain from either of those uh, is deprivation and sacrifice and giving things up. And, and I found that to be, and, and I certainly um, thought that with the alcohol, probably even more so than when I went vegan, but I found that, that um, in, in, in contrast, it's really just the opposite that both, both going vegan and alcohol free were much more expansive. Um, when I started eliminating animal products, I discovered a whole new world of cuisine that I had never tried before and uh, new ways of looking at things and just a, a whole new mindset and a whole new spirituality. It was a, very much a spiritual awakening. And I felt that again um, when I when I uh, quit drinking um, and I discovered the joys of kombucha and, <laughs> and, and some other things and, and, and another spiritual awakening and a, a awakening of self-compassion, whereas my veganism had been primarily focused on compassion for um, animals. I was finally coming to the point that I was developing self-compassion self-compassion so um and with that self-compassion i felt that i needed to do something to quit harming myself oh that's a beautiful story and you tell it tell it beautifully in the book so what helped you i mean you made all these changes i love how it was one a decade <laughs> and <laughs> what helped you do these things um well, there were a variety of things. Um, uh, books have always played an important part in my life. So whether it's the books that I read that started getting me thinking about animals, um, Annie Grace's book, This Naked Mind, uh, which really opened my eyes to uh, exploring my relationship with alcohol. Um, online communities, uh, both for vegan and uh, non-drinking communities, uh, were were very helpful at first. Um, the podcasts, uh, like this one, and others, uh, were especially the first, uh, you know, my early uh, vegan days um, uh, were invaluable to help me keep from feeling alone. Um, the support of, of some friends, and then as far as when it came comes to when it came to the uh, uh, stopping drinking um, coaching, and I can't emphasize enough how much life coaching has helped me and how transformational that has been, because without the support and encouragement of my coaches. Uh, it's doubtful that I would have been able to complete the book, and it's doubtful that I would be here now. So, so um, 
so those things were all very helpful for me. And I, you know, I'm happy to connect with anybody who has questions about anything um, and would like for more information. Um, I, you know, love to connect with people. Oh, that's great. So your website is evolvingintowholeness.com. And uh, on Facebook, it's Diane with two N's, hyphen, Waltner, hyphen, author. I'll put all of that on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So I'm interested in how your family has taken to all of this. Well, and that's a good question. To be honest, as of now, I'm not really, we didn't have a big family. I have a a brother, a sister-in-law, a niece and nephew, and they really haven't said too much about it since the book has come out. So I'm I'm honestly not sure what their thoughts are. Um, my parents, unfortunately, have both passed, um, and my dad in 2004 and my mom in 2006, and that was actually prior. They, I was vegetarian at the time, but they passed prior to me going vegan. I know at one time. Um, I mean, mom had always been really supportive when I went vegetarian, and that was a real challenge telling them that it was it was rough. Uh, but mom was always supportive, and she always made sure that she had vegetarian food for me. And um, she even said one time when we were eating lunch together, you know, it really wouldn't be hard for me to go vegetarian. So, so I was, um, yeah. And and dad never really said too much, but I, I never got, I was fortunate in that I never got a lot of the pushback that some of my other friends were getting when they went vegetarian back, you know, years ago, back in like the 90s. Um, so, uh, so I was fortunate that even though my family had that tradition um, and had that history, they were still... Um, loving and supportive of my choices. And uh, I, I felt really blessed by that. And, and you know, that's another thing that I um, wanna make, even though, even though what some of the things that we did were horrible, uh, the, most of the people were not horrible people. That is so important that you said that. I think it's difficult for some new vegans to get that. And there seems to be a a quick rush to judgment and very harsh criticism of, of people who make a mistake or who seem impure or imperfect. And yet, how can we possibly go forward without allowing for human failings and the desire to get up and try again? Yes, and actually that is that is one of the reasons why I decided to write the book also, because I wanted to be, I mean, having certainly been on both ends uh, and seen both sides of the issue, I wanted to try and do what I can to to um, help people become aware of that and to try and help bridge, be somewhat of a bridge between um, activists and people in the industry. Because I'll never forget um, one of 
when I went to the vegetarian summer fest one year, uh, I met this woman after one of the sessions that they had, and I had talked a little bit about my involvement with the hatchery, and she came up to me after it and said, you know, she thanked me, and she said that um, she was so grateful to hear from somebody else because she used to work in the medical research lab, and she wasn't a part of that, and she wanted to be involved with the animal rights community, but she didn't really feel welcome there because people were so offended at what she had done that she just didn't feel like she belonged anywhere. And so I want you know activists to be aware too, to be open to helping and receiving people who may be willing but scared to change. Mm, no, that's very helpful. Thank you, Diane. So you describe yourself as an animal rights activist, and that's, I think, a loaded word for a lot of people. I think it scares a lot of people, but, you know, you're a lovely, mild-mannered woman from the Midwest, and you call yourself that. What does that mean to you? Well, and honestly, sometimes I uh, I go back and forth. Sometimes I say advocate, and sometimes I say activist. Um it just means that I want to be active in working to make the world a better place. Uh, I want to be active in sending more love and compassion out into the world. And so I think that activist, uh, being an activist is just being active in making a better world. And you are doing that. <laughs> and now just a quick question as we come to our close here, about where you have wound up spiritually. I mean, the Mennonite tradition, as I understand it, has tremendous beauty and pacifism, peacefulness, simple living. And now you've made your way to unity, which was founded by very dedicated vegetarians. So uh, just in in the last minute or so, uh, how do you see the big picture? Uh, well, yes, I have been very happy at Unity. I've, you know, I've been through several different traditions, and I've, you know, I've gotten uh, a lot of benefit from all of the spiritual traditions that I've I've been in. But Unity, and that is one of the things that was really drew me to Unity, was the uh, the Fillmore's writings about animals and the fact that they even had a non-leather Bible. Um, so I'm, and I am feeling, um, you know, a lot of support and encouragement from my unity community, and I'm very grateful for it. Oh, that's wonderful. And I think that there used to be a, a vegetarian minister at unity in Wichita. Yes. At least in some point in history. Cool. Well, now, now they have you. A fabulous author with a fabulous book, Evolving into Wholeness, Diane Waltner. Check it out and stay with us when we come back. We're going to talk with a real-life poet. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield, May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. 
Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. You know, at this time, I always invite visitors to my website, MainStreetVegan.net, and also to join the Main Street Vegan podcast listeners group on Facebook. So you can really be in the inner circle and make suggestions and tell me what you like a lot and what you like less and who and what kinds of topics you would like to see covered. So just if you are on Facebook, it is the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Group. And this week, I want to announce one last time, the Yoga Goes Vegan online gathering and retreat happening this Saturday. That is the spring equinox, March 20th. And the link for that is tinyurl.com slash yoga goes vegan and you can get there from the mainstreetvegan.net site as well this is going to be such a delicious day we're going to learn a lot share a lot and be really accepted so whatever your relationship is at this point to vegan living or to yoga it, it you're cool you're fine. You are welcome. This is going to be the perfect way to spend the first day of spring. And it is a benefit for the Integral Yoga Institute, but offered on a sliding scale that slides pretty far down. So tinyurl.com slash yoga goes vegan. And you know what? If it doesn't slide down far enough for you in this COVID time, just go to my website, MainStreetVegan.net. There's a contact thing there. Just let me know if you need a scholarship. We can make that work. And now we go from Yoga Goes Vegan to Poetry Going Vegan with our wonderful next guest, Gretchen Primag. Prime. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is so funny. She was so kind to tell me her surname is pronounced Primac like primate. So what did I do? I started to say primate. Okay. Gretchen Primack is a poet, educator, and indie bookseller in New York's Hudson Valley. Her most recent book of poems, Kind, explores the dynamic between humans and other animals. Her previous collection, Visiting Days, is set in a maximum security prison like the ones where she teaches. Her poems have appeared in many journals and anthologies, including the Paris Review and Best New Poets. Welcome, Gretchen. So happy to be here. Well, it is just wonderful to be talking with the woman who created these incredible poems that I have been reading. So let, let's just tackle the P word first thing. I think that we're all feeling a little bit more comfortable with poetry since the presidential inauguration and hearing a, a 
person who's young and vital and beautiful and interesting reading a poem. And yet <laughs> some people are still afraid. Help, help us become people who appreciate poetry. Oh, I mean, I'm afraid. Like, it's, it, there is so much poetry out there that I think warrants those kind of feelings that we can get when we hear the P word, as you put it. And um, I don't write those kind of poems, and I don't really like to read those kind of poems. I think the world of poetry, like the world of art or the world of film or the world of novels, has all different kinds in it. And um, there's that kind that's that's a little over everyone's head that gets... Um, a lot of attention and perhaps the bad rap that maybe it deserves. I don't know. But there are people like the beautiful Amanda Gorman that you referenced and um, other people who are doing a poetry that really is meant to communicate and move us um, and sometimes to to help us change and to um, get us in touch with topics that we might not have ever explored um, or certainly explored this way. So I definitely think it has value, and I also understand why people are a little bit like, really, poetry, you know? (laughs) But how about being a poet? I remember in high school, my Beatles fan club pen pal, who Uh lived in Washington, D.C., and just seemed incredibly sophisticated, it said to me once that there were only 27 Americans who on their income tax form where it said occupation listed poet. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a rare breed. How did you get to be one? You know, it's so true that even poets who might have a very um, – big fan base, or relatively speaking, I mean, they don't have Stephen King fan bases, you know, but even ones who are quite popular and have, um, and have a lot of fans teach. So they would probably put, oh, I'm a professor, you know, rather than I'm a poet. Um, I got started the way, you know, a lot of young people write poems, and then at some point, they lose interest, or they're told that those aren't, you know, good enough, um, and they might drop off from that. I just never really dropped off, and I kept wanting to do it. And and so even though I would have a a day job, I would, you know, go take a poetry workshop at night or something. And finally, somebody said, you know what, just go to grad school. Like, just do this in a more serious way. And once you take something to that level, you start to see the, the various opportunities in the field, like teaching or, um, you know, trying to get things published. And that's kind of what set me on my way to taking it more seriously, having it more central in my life. Mm. So you teach in prisons as one of the many things you do in life. Is, Is this poetry that you teach? Yeah, poetry, creative writing. Um, I have taught academic writing, so I teach on the college level. And so these are colleges who have partnerships with uh, correctional facilities. And um, so the incarcerated students are getting college degrees. Um, And um, I generally teach either poetry or creative writing in general at this point. It's a real pleasure. 
Oh, wow. And that is a world that most of us know almost nothing about. What parallels do you see between our food system and the prison system? Well, that's uh, an interesting question and I think a really important one. Um, Having thought about animal issues for so many years and working in facilities for so many years, I really do see parallels because I think what we're talking about is power. We're talking about power differential. We're talking about people lording over others um, because they are seen as lesser in both cases. And we're also seeing cages in both cases, right? We're seeing... Uh, and there's actually a poem. I have a an, another book that you reference called Visiting Days that talks about that parallel, that we like to cage um, what we don't understand, what we despise, what we don't want to see, what we want to, you know, have uh, just benefit us rather than be seen as um, an individual in their own right. So um, the parallels are, are shockingly there. That is fascinating. And I have heard about just the food served in prisons and that it comes from these big food service companies and is more distant from anything natural than even what we think of as not great food out in the world. And and that as we want and hope that people will be rehabilitated, we're not nourishing them in a rehabilitative way. No, it's really, really dreadful uh, what passes for food. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. You know, it's it's one of those situations where and I mean, Victoria, we we know a lot of these situations where you just want to sit people down and say, this doesn't make sense. You don't take a population, put them in a building, and feed them horribly and think that anything good can come out of that in, in any way that you would define the word health, emotional health, mental health, physical health. Uh, it, it, it does not serve itself. Keeping people sick, keeping people from any sort of health does not give you a strong society. And this is mandated here. Now, I, I had the privilege of knowing somebody who's now out, but he was incarcerated for almost 20 years, who went vegan in prison. Um, I have a poem about that in Visiting Days, actually. Uh, and so he spent, you know, most of 20 years as a vegan in a, a prison, mostly a maximum security prison. It, whatever you're thinking about how hard that would be, you're right. It's unbelievably hard. People who are trying to do the right thing for their bodies, for the planet, for animals, for living beings, are thwarted at every turn, let alone people who, who aren't trying, right, who are just saying this is what one eats. This is what we're supposed to eat. Uh, so it's just, um, it's a really sad situation and it benefits no one. Mm. Well, actually, well, let, let me, let me take that back. It, it okay. very much benefits multi multinational corporations. Uh, a lot of things do. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, I'm very happy to know that you are there. 
with with your influence and also very happy that there's a new edition of Kind. Kind originally came out in two, uh, 2013 and mm-hmm. now there's a brand new one with a fabulous cover. <laughs> what else it has is changed? It's a really amazing cover. It's it's cover the cover art is by the amazing vegan uh painter Dana Ellen. That's E L L Y N in DC. And there's actually images inside from her and also from the amazing Jane O'Hara, another vegan artist, and um, also by Gus Mueller, who is also a vegan artist and is my husband. Ah. So read us a poem. Just let's cut to the chase. I read <laughs> a few lines from one at the beginning, but I want to hear a favorite of your poems read by the poet. Mm, I'm happy to do that. Do you have any parameters for me? An animal that you particularly like? Do you want it to be on the heavier or lighter side? Well, let's do lighter. This is Unity Online Radio, and we celebrate the positive. Mm, and. Okay. Uh, all animals are created equal. So you if it's about a particular animal, you pick the one. All right. Let's do let me read a poem called Coxcomb. And there is an image alongside this poem of a very beautiful chicken by Dana Allen. And this has a little quote to start it off by another poet named Greg Kosma. And the quote is, here was where the bully could not reach. Coxcomb. Abraham was a rooster. He'd been made to fight. He was not a fighter. He ended up in a basement with a sign, no one touch the killer. We brought him to the sanctuary. He loved peanut butter and jelly. He loved laps and Linda's pillow. He was not a fighter. He wanted to be held by toddlers, Phi Beta Kappas, grievers, and socialists, and pop stars. He wanted you to gentle his comb between your forefinger and thumb. It was a smooth, warm piece of a smooth, warm Abraham, and it blushed bliss. It was tender, like someone who had been as unloved as a chicken, and then as loved as a chicken could be loved. He grew old and full of love and died, rubbing his head back and forth, back and forth against Linda's arm. We planted coxcomb, a growing glow. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was incredibly moving. I I could see him and feel the emotions that that are surrounding him and his life and all animals and all beings it really touches the heart mm, now I'm so some glad. people think poetry is supposed to rhyme and when it doesn't what is the difference between poetry and prose you know you could have just told us about him and used lots of very descriptive words why would it not have been like what we just experienced? Poetry cares about 
a combination of so many different elements, and when they come together, they should be greater than the sum of their parts. And it's a you know it's an age old question: what is poetry? And I get it. And ten people sitting around or might have ten different answers, but. For me, I want there to be an element of craft. So the way that the words are put together, the kind of language that I'm using, where I'm breaking a line, um, those things are going to be craft. And then also content. So what am I talking about? What details do I want to put in that I think will elicit a certain picture and a certain emotion? So I'm aiming to get you on several different levels. I want you in your brain, and I want you in your heart, and I want you in your gut. So the way that I'm trying to compose this this piece as if it were music or draw this image as if it were visual art, um, piece this together, all of those elements together, that, that creates the poem, and hopefully it creates a bodily experience for you that does reach you in those different places. Well, uh, that one certainly did. <laughs> and all the ones <laughs> that I have read have done that kind. Everybody, you just you just have to get it. That that's all. <laughs> if you've never bought a book of poetry in your life, kind. That's that's uh, the book for you. So, as a non-fiction vegan writer, I'm always struggling with reaching the non-vegan. I mean, I'm happy to reach vegans, and I've heard that there's a high recidivism rate, so let's do everything we can to keep people in the fold. And yet the, the real purpose of this is to make more people see a, a, a wonderful rooster and a wonderful way of life that turns from animal products and animal abuse. So... What do you want readers to take away from kind? And I'm talking particularly these new people that we're really going to hope and pray you're getting. Yeah, that's very important to me. I feel the same as you. I'll bet, I'll bet we have very similar philosophies on that. We want our work to be read very widely, and we're thinking about people who have not made these changes yet. But we're also very glad that people who are vegan find so much support and inspiration um, and co and communality, if that's a word, and if it's not, I, I have poetic license, right? Um, you know, from our work. Like, it makes me so happy when a vegan says, oh, I, I found myself here, and I'm so glad to have found myself. Well, that makes me happy, too, but I really want people who have not thought about this stuff to think about this stuff. So that is a goal of the book. And so the, the, the poems are very varied um, in, their, uh, in their language, in the animal species that I'm talking about, um, in uh, their tone. And, and so I think taken together, the idea is really to get people to think differently. And I think art just does that in a different way, and not a better way, a different way from other means, from other vehicles. And we need all of them, don't we? You know, because we don't know what's going to move someone. People are very complicated. 
Someone might be moved by a poem, so I want that poem out there. Somebody might be moved by nonfiction, so I want you out there. Somebody moved by a documentary, I want documentarians, you know, making their films. And But for those people who would be moved ineffably even, you know, they don't even know why or how, but by poems, I want these out there in the world. And a lot of times what happens is vegans will buy the book and just slip it to somebody else who's thoughtful, um, who who calls themselves an animal lover, who likes poems, who likes art, who's open to, um, you know, to reading um, in a, a more kind of artsy way. And it really does cause change, right? So it might be a family member, it might be a friend, it might be donating it to their local library. It's, oh, look at that cover. That's really cute. I love dogs. And then see what happens when they read. And I have been really happy to to hear that, you know, I give readings or um, through somebody contacting me on, online or something saying, you know, yeah, this I'm I'm done with dairy or, you know, this changed me or I think my mom's going to stop eating bacon now or, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. The, the victories where we just live on the victories. My, my daughter gave me a little uh, button in a Christmas stocking once that said, I, I don't just believe in miracles. I depend on them. And mm. that's how I feel about these little victories. One person's mm-hmm. mom stopped eating bacon. The The, mm-hmm. the vastness of that cannot be overemphasized. <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I also try, I have so many different species in here, so many different kinds, and, and so each one of them is, is, a, is a, a way through the door. So a lot of times when I'm giving a reading, I start with a poem that's in the voice of an elephant who um, is being exploited at a circus. And a lot of people even who have not made the change in terms of how they eat, understand that that's problematic, right? So if I can kind of get them on my side and in my brain and in my heart through that poem, then maybe when they turn the page and they see a poem about a calf, you know, or about a pig or about, you know, workers who are forced to take these jobs and and do this work of you know, harming in our names, maybe they'll be more open to that. Yes. Yeah, that's a great way to get in. So, Gretchen, you're a poet, so you have to live with your heart wide open. And yet, there's all of this cruelty against animals. There's all this suffering of animals every day, 24-7, round the clock. How on earth does somebody with the heart of a poet, much less even just the rest of us, deal with that? Well, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. But the the funny thing is that the art is so much about what is so much what helps, right? I mean, there's other things that help. Being around people who are also working for change, people who feel similarly, that is incredibly important to me, incredibly healing for me in this. My other activism around animals is so important to me. My veganism is so important to me. But so is the writing and feeling like I am doing something that could be, you know, 
creating one of those little miracles that you're talking about. Um, that is so helpful. I, I wonder if you find the same, that in doing the work, you are helping to heal, even when the work forces you to look at an issue just right there in the face. I think so. I wonder sometimes if doing the work makes me not look because I'm so busy. What do you do all day long? I try to make vegans. What What are you doing? I'm doing the work. I'm doing the work. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes when there's not COVID, I just need to go to a sanctuary or, mm -hmm. or even worse, go where animals are suffering. My husband was just um, certified in animal Reiki and he's joined the I believe it's called Animal Reiki Shelter Association so that he'll be able to go into shelters and work with the incarcerated animals. Uh -huh. And, you know, I'm not sure I have that in me today. I'm glad he does. I'm glad uh -huh. that everybody can do what they're willing to do. Yeah, and we need it all. And we can't each be doing all of it. So we play to our strengths and to our will and to what keeps us sane and, um, and also valuable in the world. And so I think no matter what we do, we have a role to play. And whatever role we're playing is a wonderful one. You are so right. And I think the most important role for each of us is to embody the title of your wonderful book of animal rights poems. And that is kind. Mm -hmm. When we can't change the world today, we can be kind. Uh, Gretchen's website, GretchenPrimack.com. Gretchen Primack on Facebook and Instagram. And we will put all of that on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. And I just want to remind you once again to check out this weekend's retreat, tinyurl.com slash yoga goes vegan. So let's get that done. Thanks to both of my guests, to Unity Online Radio, and to all of you for listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies and read some really beautiful poetry, or prose. All the best. Till next time. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Dr. Mona Lisa, and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. Be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa One, to get that information. I answer audience questions, and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively 
part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts.